who is going to present each time. This person must write out their presentation in two pages. Everybody reads it instead of him presenting it orally. And then we go around the room with everybody making comments. It is one of the most genuinely supportive groups I've ever seen. It's not super sympathetic in that sense. It's not, it's not um, they, people don't go around diagnosing one another. They just, each one comes out of their own experience and talks about how they've dealt with it and through questions helps that person define themselves and get more clear-headed about things. Um, that's, it's a group that's really helped in that way. Um, I think one of the dangers with some of those support groups, as I say, is what can look like support is just everybody getting togetherness. Now, let me try your question on a broader level, which I thought you were going towards. What do you do with this? If you're a minister, if you're a rabbi, you know, what do you do with this? Well, I say what you don't do is try to pick the whole thing up and change it. The more you would try to pick that thing up and change it, the more it'll engulf you. Like that last diagram on the third of those diagrams on the brochure. I think if you buy what I'm saying here, what you do is commit yourself to being the non-anxious presence in all your relationships, in all your leadership or consulting positions. And you just work at transforming that anxiety down in your own connections. And if enough people did that, you'd have enough circuit breakers that maybe the system would begin to change. I saw the hand in the back there. Oh, yeah. Could you comment on the dynamics of millennialism? Of which? Millennialism that we're starting that. to see in, I see it in the media, uh, supermarket magazine racks, you know, the year 2000 is coming and, and it, it strikes me that that is maybe an early manifestation of some kind of anxiety, but I know the last time we came around on all the zeros, society went crazy, and I wonder if you see that coming. I don't know what to say about that. When I was making the comparison between um, Columbus's time and ours, that was going to be another thing I would add, that it was the end of a, of a century, or the end of a significant century, you know, 500 years or 1,000. And there, I've read things here and there about how society gets more anxious at the end of a century, and that would be tenfold maybe the end of a millennium. I guess that's a possibility. I just don't know how to talk about that in any reasonable, rational way. Uh, I, have, I, I, I think it could be a factor. But then you'd have to go back and say this chronic anxiety in society, which has been building up for 25, 35 years, is as we get to the end of a millennium. I guess it's a possibility. I don't know what to say about that. Um, I, I believe I understand what you were saying about the clergy, uh, parishioner, sexual abuse type of situations. And it certainly is interesting when you said um, that uh, we, uh, you know, it's, it's not ended right, ended correctly. And if I remember your Generation to Generation book, you talked a lot about the importance of, of ending things in a, in a good and healthy, self-differentiated way. But it seemed like we talked about that so fast, and, I, and I'm thinking of churches and situations that I've witnessed too where it's done tremendous damage when this type of a relationship and tryst has gone on, 
that you certainly must say or must agree, I would think, or I, I certainly feel strongly about the fact that with the power differential between a clergy and a parishioner, that, that some of the responsibility that we need to work on is a clergy. Well, I don't buy that power differential. As I see it, don't. an enormous amount of men mm -hmm. in the clergy mm -hmm. are powerless. They're powerless and they're seductible and uh, uh, I don't buy that whole thing about was that book that came out from that English psychiatrist a few years ago. Was it, what was it called? Um, something about willing consent or something. I don't know what it was. Um, when you say there's tremendous damage, you see, that again goes against this whole issue of the response of the organism. Hmm. And I think I would rather stay on the side of encouraging people to take responsibility for what they get into. But again, I'll repeat what I said. I didn't say this was a false issue. I said these are displacement issues. And I think society is in far more danger from what is happening to clergy than what is happening to parishioners. The number of women, let's, because it's mostly male clergy and women parishioners, the number of women parishioners who have been harmed, you say tremendous damage, by getting involved in these relationships, which is, to a large extent, a result of their vulnerability, their naivete, their problems and so on. But, it, you know, not excusing that in any way. Mm -hmm. Say it's the man's fault all the way. It is nothing compared to what is happening to the clergy of America. And religion in America is being far more destroyed by what is happening to the clergy than by what is happening to the parishioners. It is a huge displacement issue. Mm -hmm. Sex and salvation have always gone together. Read the Decameron, read Boccaccio, you know? Did it stop after Luther? That's nonsense. They go together, and they'll always go together. And the fact that they're wrong, I'm not arguing that they're not wrong. What I'm saying is we've gotten so focused on that, we have forgotten to defend ourselves. That's where I'm coming from. Interesting. Well, I didn't bring you here to tell you what you believe, you know? I mean. <laughs> I'd like to tell you a, a simple story that has nothing to do with sex, <laughs> but it's about my grandmother, and at the beginning of the Depression, she lived in a small town in California, and the Methodist church built, burnt down, and the whole town gathered to clean the bricks off, didn't matter what religion they were, and rebuild the church. At the same time, there was a bread line, and my grandmother was part of the crew handing out bread in the bread line. And what they did is they handed people a loaf of bread and they asked him if they would come over and help at the church in return for getting the bread. And a man came up to my grandmother and she handed him a loaf and said, we're working on the bricks at the Methodist church. Would you mind coming over and helping us? And he said, you can't make me do it. She grabbed the loaf and said, I, you can't make me give you the bread either. Yes. I have to affirm what you have been saying, I guess from experience, uh, I learned that uh, the head does make a difference and I should trust myself more. My question has to do with, I've been experimenting all along in my ministry with the, the strength and the wisdom that is also in the group, in the body, that the body also has um, something to give just as well as the head does. Um, and I've been burnt many times. 
But, so my question still is, even though the head has to be the head, where, what's the role of the body in mutual wisdom? Well, some stuff I've read recently points out that all the ideas, all the concepts, all the information that the head gets comes through the body. Um, what is the role of the body? I mean, you can't have a brain without a body. You can't have a soul without a body. You can't have um, experiences upon which to philosophize if your body doesn't give you those sensations. I don't know what to say about the role of the body. I've never thought about that, in part because most of my presentations are to leaders. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhat stuck by the way you phrase the question of what is the role of the body. Well, I guess that's maybe what I'm looking for is um, it, some time ago, one of my CTE advisor told me, he, he gave me a test and he said, um, well, you don't trust people very much. So I went on to trust people more. Um, and now what I'm hearing from you is don't trust people very much. Maybe I'm hearing wrong. Uh, trust yourself, which is obviously true. But there's also wisdom in the other people in there that we need to listen to, and I think we need to have a balanced view of this thing, the, the, the body thing, the, the whole thing. We need to... I would agree with you. And I have to answer you the same way I answered several questions yesterday that also were, like yours, trying to put it more into balance. In the best of all worlds, you got more of a balance. Mm -hmm. What I see happening in society today is the balance is way over in one direction, and I'm going over in the other direction to help create the balance. Okay. Okay. Could this chronic anxiety and lack of people taking responsibility and low pain threshold that seems to be chronic be contributing to the rise of depression that are being treated and the increased use of Prozac and other antidepressants? Well, I said that it's not only illegal drugs, it's legal drugs. And what would be a better way for us to help people with their depression? What course would... You mean like if you're a minister and someone comes into you and they're depressed? Correct. I don't know how to answer that one quickly. I think, first of all, one has to ask the question, to what extent is depression the way this person relates to the world? And does this person control and regulate relationships through their depression? That would be one of the first questions. I'd always be asking myself, to what extent are there clear, real incidents in this person's life that could be contributing to their depression? I would want to look at a family view of it and find out what's... I would rarely isolate depression in one marriage partner from the marriage. I'd be curious to know to what extent the depression is related to differentiation in their spouse, changing their child, looking for major issues there. I think I'm still on the side of challenge. Depression has become such a breadbasket term for non-functioning. So when you ask me that right off the bat, I don't know. 
Um, again, I'm going to give the other extreme constantly here. Uh, but let's say you've got somebody who comes to you. I mean, if someone is really clinically depressed, constantly depressed, then clergy shouldn't be dealing with them, right? My experience in listening to clergy is the kind of people we deal with are chronically troubled. And they always see the world as being against them. And they're always focused on the dark side and negative side of life. Now, to begin with, I would never try to pull people out of their depression. I think you get into a will conflict and they hang on to their depression like uh, Snoopy does to a security blanket or something, you know? I think a very effective way of dealing with people who are depressed is getting depressed with them and telling them how crappy the world is and how miserable it is and how maybe they really have picked up how bad the world is and all the other people are denying it. I think you can do that. <laughs> but that chronically troubling member of the congregation who calls you at dessert, always, just before dessert, <laughs> who keeps you on the phone and you're trying to avoid them and you're trying to keep away from them, you're trying to shorten the phone conversation, if you're willing to invest an hour, you can probably get out of it. And it ain't helping that person to just let them go on like they go on. And what you do is you say to that person, Mrs. Smith, I want you to know that I have talked to many people in my life who've had problems, but I've never, never seen anybody like yours. <laughs> you are, without question, in my experience, the most unfortunate human being I've ever met. <laughs> I've never seen so many problems in one person. It's almost as though God were punishing you. <laughs> Do you believe that, Minister Rabbi? No, I'm just saying that's where my thoughts go when I hear all your problems. And what I want you to know most is how inadequate I feel to be able to help you. I only wish the Holy Spirit would come through me into you and I just don't know whether it's my fault or your problems are just too great even for him or it. Um, no, don't rush off the phone. You can stay on as long as you want. If you can get it reversed to where they want to get off the phone and you're trying to keep them on, then you've got it made. Now, what you have in effect done to a person when you do that is give them the choice of relating to you maturely or not at all. If you don't get all caught up in that stuff and you instead become the challenging growth-producing presence, then you put them in a bind where they've got to either change to have a relationship with you or they'll go elsewhere, and that's okay. What I hear you saying in terms of the relationship between the head of the body is this, that the head needs to be connected to the body and listen to the body. However, the agenda for the body under the direction of the head cannot be set by the sick people, the people unmotivated, the people that are stuck. And I agree with your observation that one of the reasons why so many of our institutions are in the situation that they are in 
is because the head um, is willing is not willing to uh, listen to health, but is more um, in tuned with with sickness and will build around sickness instead of building around the health. So you end up having the the tail uh, wagging the dog. Um, that's I think a fairly good summary of what I'm trying to say. What I would add is there's a reason your eyes are on your head and not on your kidneys. Only the head can see the whole thing. You can't expect the members of your congregation or work system or whatever to see things as well as you can. And that's why leadership has to start with the head. I'd, I'd like to continue a comment along that line. In your analogy about the body debating whether or not they were going to have a heart transplant, yes. um, it seems to me that the role of the body is for each organ, tissue, cell, organelle to do their job the best they can and to not focus on whether or not anybody else is doing their job within the setting or on whether the leader's doing their job because that's always displacement. Just do your job the best you can. And the problem with depressed people is they're always looking around them for somebody to make their life better and they don't and trying to encourage them to take responsibility to make their own life better and do their job the best they can is overwhelming to them and they choose not to. I hear you on that and um, you know there's a great debate about the extent to which depression is genetic or chemical or motivation. It's hard to know. So what I say is don't try to know it. You can't know it. What you can do is be the kind of growth producing presence in their life. How should I put this? It is not necessary to analyze people to understand them. It's not necessary to understand people at all. All that's necessary is for you to be the growth promoter in their life. And you do that by focusing on you, not on them. Dr. Friedman, I'm wondering if you've given any consideration to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous as a model of regenerative community. Uh, embodying a lot of the positive things that you see, characteristics you see in a healthy... Community. I know very little about AA. I've never been to a meeting. I've read about it. Um, people have pointed out to me that there are a lot of parallels between what AA says and things that I've said. I just don't feel adequate to be able to comment on that. Okay? Yeah, over the last uh, five or six years, it seems to me, five or six, maybe a little bit more, I've been reading more and more in the op-ed sections and more and more uh, volumes have been produced, including the one you're working on now. Could you pick up the microphone? Also? More and more things have been, uh, been released in the newspapers in the op-ed sections. More and more columnists are writing, uh, more books are being written. Uh, for example, I just got through reading a book called In Defense of Elitism. Uh, more workshops such as this that demonstrate a movement um, in the opposite direction of victimization or blaming. As a matter of fact, the, to use the word victimization now, where they're just being a victim or playing victim, is a slam. 
Uh, I see more of that happening. Is that uh, demonstrated? Would, would you care to comment? I don't know what to say about it. Is it, mm -hmm. is it, some, is it a genuine growth thing? Or a reactive stance itself? I don't know. I don't know the answer. To I don't know either. And if, <laughs> <laughs> my other uh, question. Yesterday you mentioned societal regression and, and that we are in a, a societal regression. And regression implies to me that uh, there, there's been a move back, an ebb back from a previous stance of a higher level of differentiation, let's say. And I was kind of, um, I'd like to hear some comments on that. When you say a higher level of differentiation, what kind of time span are you talking about? Um, I'm not sure. I think. How do you know? This is a fact-based theory. Right. That's I think concern. it's primarily since the Kennedy assassination. Okay. Since with then. ups and downs, even in that period. But that's the period I'm thinking about. Okay, so you don't go back before that or anything. I'm sure all societies go through ups and downs and chronic anxiety. Uh -huh. I think America has been primarily in a trough since okay. the Kennedy assassination. Okay. So you're not seeing these op-eds as a way that we're moving out of that? It might be. Or maybe reactive. Wait, say uh, that again. I don't see what? The, the op-eds and the books that are being written. Um, they might be. I don't know. Or, or it might be a reaction to. Right. Um, I, I think uh, I, I see the, uh, the symptoms of this displacement appearing in different ways than most of the examples you cite. Um, in, amongst my prisoners, uh, who are mostly uh, white suburbanite people, I think they, they seem to uh, be a lot more likely to blame uh, their, uh, the source of their anxiety. They blame poor people. They blame minorities, they, uh, they blame women, uh, they blame gays, they blame the cities. Um, and what they, they seem to be less likely to, uh, to subvert, uh, they don't, they seem to blame those, or, or unions, that's the other ba uh, real bad guy. And uh, they're, they're, they're more likely to do that than they are to blame uh, the leaders although there's some of that too, but they, their solution seems to be more, uh, uh, what we need is to get some white males and put them back in charge of things here so we can get this thing straightened out. And, and that seems a lot different uh, to me than some of the things you've been saying. How is it different? Well, when you cite the example of all the money that's spent on uh, on disadvantaged children, for instance, or uh, kids that are troubled, as opposed to the uh, gifted, uh, I, I tend to rather think that um, they're opposite yeah. directions, and they appear to be opposite political things. But what they have in common is displacement. Uh huh. I I tend to agree with that. Yeah. Go on. I take one more question, and then we'll go through a break. How would you preach a Mother's Day sermon? I'm sorry. <laughs> how would you preach? I didn't hear the question. <laughs> how would you preach a Mother's Day sermon? How would I preach a Mother's Day sermon? Hmm. This, this Mother's Day, Sunday? This Sunday, coming up. That's a good one. You want, you want me to come right back immediately without any thought, huh? How would I preach a Mother's Day sermon? Dead so, reckoning. Well, I hear you all the way. Uh, the, uh, 
The, uh, the worst Mother's Day sermon I ever heard was a rabbi giving a talk in which he quoted from Philip, from, from Philip Wiley's Generation of Vipers, who has a long page attacking women all over the place, tongue-in-cheek. Um, how would I preach a Mother's Day sermon today? Well, you know, it's coming straight off the top of my head. My thought would be that I might give a sermon today telling mothers that they're getting snookered by Mother's Day and that Mother's Day keeps them stuck and that uh, I can't come up with another word for it, but um, I think I've tried to talk about how Mother's Day perpetuates the myths of motherhood. That's as far as I can go right now. <laughs> Okay, let's take a short break. Okay, unless someone has a burning question, I want to go on because to some extent it took more time than I expected with the question. Uh, all right. Oh, people were asking me about the, uh, the reprints. Um, you, you just send it to me on the address that's on those uh, letters. And for those who didn't take one, the address on there is 4821 Montgomery Lane. In other words, if you want the reprints and you didn't take one of those uh, flyers, then you send the check for the reprints to 4821 Montgomery Lane, 4821 Montgomery Lane in Bethesda, Maryland, and the zip is 20814, 20814. Well, you can copy it off. Uh, there's still some uh, applications here. I think we ran out of the applications for the uh, professional program, but uh, let me know if you want one uh, and I'll get one mailed to you. Now, what I want to do is go into what I call the three equators of our society. And by the way, uh, I guess by now you, you realize, or you would have maybe realized beforehand, this is not two days on how to do it. These are, you know, this is two days on thinking processes. All right, and that's what I'm after, thinking processes. And my view is that there are certain myths, shibboleths, emotional barriers that exist in our society today that inhibit our imaginative capacity. And again, what I said yesterday is I think the failure of leadership has less to do with the wrong method or technique than the way we conceptualize the problem. What I presented to you earlier this morning about societal anxiety, note that, that all those ideas totally transcend the categories of the social science construction of reality. At no time did I say, or in any way, did I develop that thesis in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, class, age, and so on. I believe the principles I presented to you this morning transcend all of those divisions. The divisions exist. They're useful politically. But from the point of view of understanding relationships and leadership, I think the focus on the data of the social science obscures what I tried to present this morning. It not only doesn't enlighten, it obscures. And I think that leads in turn to the popularity of focusing on issues like diversity. It enables us not to have to face the much deeper issue of the anxiety in society. And that's, that's where I'm coming from on that. Now, what do I mean by an emotional barrier? Well, the equator obviously was one. What would be another one? 
Well, the four-minute mile was. Take a little one. Four-minute mile. I grew up in World War II when Gunder Haig and Arnie Anderson, two Swedish runners, kept trying to break the four-minute mile. No matter what they did, they couldn't do it. They just couldn't strain themselves to do it. I think they got it down to four minutes, one and four-tenths seconds. And that was the world record. And sports pages would have articles saying, is this a natural barrier like the speed of light? that nobody will ever be able to run a mile faster than 414. And then in 1957, a little more than 10 years later, Roger Bannister does it, an English physician, and the following year, three men do it in the same race. Now, I don't think that's a matter of technique, of training, which is the way the sports pages saw it, or psychologists saw it. Last year or the year before, an African runner lowered the time for the mile by the largest gap that had been done in a long, long time, by several seconds, I think, or two seconds or whatever. And a colleague of his was asked, how did he do that? And the response was, he isn't caught up in the mythology of Western runners. <laughs> uh, that's the power of an emotional barrier. The idea in biblical times, during the biblical prophets, that a god was chained to the fate of his people and chained to a geographical ballywick was an emotional barrier to ethical monotheism. It is only when the prophets began to say that Israel's god is God that you got out of that. It was only when God could go beyond Palestine it was only be when God could go beyond the land of Israel. It was only when God didn't need his people that you could have religion become universal. So that the idea that a God was chained to the fate of his people or a geographical ballywick was such an emotional barrier. You're going to laugh at this, but for some time I was calling the 55 mile an hour speed limit such an emotional barrier. It just didn't make sense to me. It was arbitrary. I'd go to places like Colorado and see people driving 80 miles an hour bumper to bumper. And I didn't hear about major accidents there because of that. And uh, I saw, in fact, oh gee, 20 years ago I was saying that the economy of the United States would not get better until the speed, until the 55 mile an hour speed limit was taken off. I saw the 55 mile an hour speed limit as a kind of prohibition. I saw it as being a, uh, something that inhibited the development of the spirit. In all events, these things exist, whether you agree with that one or not. They're all over the place. The sound barrier was such a thing until it was broken by Chuck Yeager. Well, it's in that spirit, in that context, that I'm saying the focus on data, the focus on empathy, and the focus on the negative side of self are emotional barriers. They inhibit our capacity, or the, particularly the capacity of leaders, to be more imaginative. I'll take one of those barriers now, between now and lunchtime, and then I'll go to the other two after lunch. The one about data goes as follows. If you were to go back in history by a factor of 10 to the year 19,000, I'm sorry, to the year, uh, uh, this is 1991, to the year 199, by a factor of 10, to the year 199, 
The amount of information that existed in the world then would fit on one shelf in your library. It would not even fill up one floppy disk. There's the two testaments, Greek and Roman writings, Hindu and Norse Vedas, Confucius, Buddha, Sumerian literature. That's about it. So, okay, there's oral tales in Africa and America, and you put those on too. But the amount of information that exists today is not ten times as much. It's a number. The difference between how much information existed then and what exists now, it itself is a number too big for a computer. And today, they now talk about storing information between atoms or in cells. And they now have learned that DNA can solve problems by attaching different aspects of the problem to uh, certain uh, DNA sequences and having proteins folded, and it can solve problems a billion times faster at a trillionth of the cost of energy. Now suppose you go in the other direction forward to the year 19,996. How much information will there be in the world then? It will outweigh the planet. It's inconceivable. And someone will get up in Lansing, Michigan in 19,996 and say, I'm going to do a presentation on education, or on therapy, or on religion, or on management, and so on. And to make sure that it's really something new, we went back and we went through all, everything that's been written on this subject in recorded history. And as you know, that means going all the way back to the year 5000, since nothing of lasting importance could have been conceived of before then. Okay. And we, with our laser, and we, with our Neanderthal laser discs, still have three millennia to go, okay? The bottom line is this. As long as you make your confidence in your ability to do your job based on how much information you've got, you're doomed to feeling inadequate forever. You will never catch up. The problem can only get worse. What is the way out of this? It is not creating a new database. Societal anxiety contributes to this data deluge. First, because of its emphasis on certainty. The anxiety produces an emphasis on certainty. And second, because of its focus on pathology. So that the focus on pathology has no natural limits to creating uh, to, to doing data, as I said earlier. That the focus on strength does have natural limits, but the focus on pathology does not. The way out, therefore, is not through a new database. The way out has more to do with developing criteria for what information is important. Not all information is important. There's no end of information you can come up with about a family in terms of its cultural, ethnical, ethnic background. But is that important in helping a family grow or deal with pain or get out of the, the uh, issues of chronic anxiety, which I talked about before? I think the answer to the problem has more to do with how we look at self and much less to do with how we find databases to deal with the data. Now, the effect of the focus on data, which is a displacement for maturity. 
the, the, the focus on data is a displacement for maturity. And it affects all of our civilization in a whole bunch of ways. And we have wound up in a situation where our brains have become sorcerer's apprentices that produce more information than we can meaningfully handle. Now, the way I'm going to go about this is to say, first of all, to describe the data deluge. Then what I'm going to do is talk about the data junkie aspect of it. How in spite of the fact that we're overwhelmed by it, we seek it as a way to deal with our anxiety. And it's just like any other form of substance abuse. And then finally, I'm going to talk about new ideas about the human brain that show that focus on data without the variable of emotional process are actually anti-intellectual. Now, I begin with medicine. I'm going to talk first about medicine, then I'm going to talk about mental health, and then briefly point out how the same thing exists in parenting and in uh, business management. And the whole idea here will be to show how the data overload is overwhelming and confusing and de-selfing. Overwhelming, confusing, and de-selfing. Way back in 1990, a man named Octo Barnett, who was in charge of the computerizing of all data from all medical journals, so that your physician, while he's cooking a hamburger on his uh, microwave, can plug into the National Institute of Health Library and know all about your condition, just sitting there. He's in charge of getting it all into a computer. He said, if a physician would work diligently to read two articles a day from medical journals, a prodigious task, but if he would at least try to do that for one full year, at the end of the year, he'd be 800 years behind. <laughs> the physician, the budding physician goes to medical school and every specialty tries to dump as much information into his brain or her brain as they can in the six weeks they're exposed to that specialty. I've heard deans of medical school tell incoming students the way to tackle the problem is to memorize 15 facts a day. What does that do to the physician? The physician then goes out and tries to see his patients in terms of the form, that ubiquitous form you fill out for every physician you go to. 120 questions on whether you've ever had any leaks in your opening. <laughs> Nobody knows where that form began. It is a focus on volumes of data that increase the anxiety of the patient because not being really knowledgeable and not having a big broad angle on it, Everything you read, you say, gee, I had that once, gee, did I have that, does this mean this? If it's on the form, it must be important. And so the very reading of the form is anxiety producing. Nowhere on the form are there questions designed to make the patient more responsible. You could have on that same form, stuck anywhere, a question like, how long do you think it will take you to get over this? <laughs> or a little later, 
How have you tended to deal with crisis in the past? Or, what relational binds do you now find complicating your life that might have a compromising effect on your integrity and therefore on the natural ability of your body to mobilize an optimal response? <laughs> A little further down, somewhere. Who will suffer most from your demise? <laughs> and maybe the last one, who will benefit most from your condition? <laughs> this separating out of emotional process from data has all kinds of other effects. For example, a patient is told he or she needs angioplasty. Fine. It clears the arteries and doesn't re-occlude in 70% of the cases. Terrific. Now we can put stents in your artery that will hold the artery open. Little wire things. They'll uncoil and keep the artery open. But in 10% of the cases, it produces a sudden reaction that closes the artery faster. Which way does the patient bet? Do you go with the 10% or the 90? Do you go with the 70 or the 30? If you've got to make choices and all you're given are statistics, how do you know what to do? Because what statistical category you are in may not be fate or luck. It may be how you're dealing with life. Not only that, the statistics you were given were based on people who collected those figures without asking what the emotional variables were that put all those other people in the 70% or 30%, the 90% or 10% category. So that the average patient is asked to make decisions constantly without taking into consideration the variables of self. The data then gets you in terms of the way the media and the scientific profession focus on pathology. And the information is confusing. For example, in the last 15 years, the public has been told that heart problems can be significantly reduced by the ingestion of polyunsaturated oils, red wine, margarine, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin D, Fish oils, oat bran, wheat bran, all whole grains, vigorous exercise, HDL increases, vegetables, soybean products, niacin, and most things that don't taste good. <laughs> but studies have also shown that constant dieting is bad, that vitamin E, while an antioxidant, also promotes that promotes arthro... I'll start that again. That vitamin E, while an antioxidant that eliminates the free radicals that promote arteriosclerosis, also raises the risk of cancer. That margarine may be worse than farm fresh butter because of its high trans fatty acid content. That low fat diets may not have this much effect on cholesterol over the long run. That French pressed coffee raised cholesterol more than percolated coffee. That cholesterol below 160 might lead to depression, suicide, and other violent deaths. That for exercise to make a difference, it does not have to be vigorous that the fatty stearic acids in chocolate do not raise serum cholesterol, that the cholesterol in eggs is balanced by its other nutrient benefits, that not all HDL is healthy, and that the benefits of seafood may be a fishtail. <laughs> the Harvard Heart Letter, which is a monthly newsletter for lay people, in an effort to warn and calm its readers simultaneously in the face of the coronary rumor mill, 
quoted studies over the last few years correlating heart conditions to 60 different substances that you can ingest, including guavas, almonds, walnuts, flavoroids, and apples, onions, and black tea, simple and complex carbohydrates. Corn oil, olive oil, alcohol, garlic, coffee, caffeine, beta-carotene, iron, magnesium, potassium, and calcium. It also quoted studies that related heart health to body shape, height, baldness, pets, snoring, menopause, music, and sex. <laughs> the same roulette atmosphere that is created by that is replied to cancer. So that cancer has been correlated with almost anything, sometimes positively and negatively simultaneously. Microwaves, cellular phones, electromagnetic fields, radon, radioactivity from burning coal, actually anything that gives off rays, fatty diets, fluid intake, pollution, mercury, antihistamines, and of course smoking, and asbestos. On the other hand, ultraviolet waves have on the one hand been implicated in melanoma and on the other hand shown to have a preventive effect on prostate cancer. Broccoli is said to have a prophylactic effect on carcinogenesis because it reduces estrogen. Vitamin A was shown in one study to ward off cancer, but to be associated with higher levels of lung cancer in another. A study asked 40,000 physicians about their food intake and found that pizza might guard against prostate cancer because of its high tomato content, even though other vegetables did not seem to guard against this type of cancer. A study correlated abortion with breast cancer in middle-aged women. And circling back to coronary conditions, studies in women correlating estrogen levels positively with cancer and negatively to heart conditions suggest an inverse ratio between what is beneficial to what can one condition and what is harmful to another. In terms of those maps I showed you yesterday where it said a correct map according to the world, according to the latest authorities, that's what's going on. Everybody's trying to produce a correct map according to the latest authorities. What should give us pause is there are other statistics that you find here and there, for example, that you have a greater chance of having a heart attack working on Mondays that your car, particularly if it is red, has the most chance of being stolen on Thursday or Saturday night, and it has even been calculated that the amount of radioactivity coming out of a hospital daily in its waste material due to patients' excreta would not be allowed if the source it was coming from were a power station. <laughs> So what do you do in this statistical world? One of my favorites is omega-3 fatty acids. A study has shown that sudden heart deaths can be reduced by 50% through the ingestion of omega-3 fatty acids. What are we waiting for? Let's overdose. What is not stated is that the amount of people who die of such conditions is 2 in 10,000. So what that study means in real numbers rather than extrapolations is that instead of 9,998 people not dying of such conditions, if we all ate omega-3 fatty acids, it would now be 9,999 out of every 10,000. This focus on pathology, this focus on data, the extrapolation from small numbers eliminates self. Extrapolation goes against differentiation. These things are constantly phrased in terms of ratios rather than numbers. What are the variables that make for individual differences? Nobody is studying that. That's what differentiation is all about. And it is this focus on pathology and this drive for certainty that produces that sort of thing.
But it's not a medical problem, it's a civilization problem. So, if we jump to mental health, and some of you have seen this list before, the number of things you can become knowledgeable about and the new syndromes and disorders that are produced every year is really unbelievable. You could get yourself knowledgeable about abortion, adoption, aging, anorexia, asthma, attention deficit disorder. That's just A. <laughs> Conflict resolution, communication, depression. Disorder this and disorder that. Handling, shyness, loneliness, intimacy, growth, creativity, grief, suicide. Living with, preschoolers, latency, phobia, school age phobias, adolescents, leaving home and learning disabilities. Under marriage, blended family, single parent problems, divorce, marital stress, intermarriage. Phobias, trains, planes, being alone, post-traumatic stress disorder, and so on. Where is the focus on post-traumatic stress leadership? <laughs> DSM-4, which I think most of you know about, the Diagnostic Manual, that has just gone through its sixth revision, it rejected 99 new syndromes, but did include 100 new disorders. It was supposed to be a guide. Publishers are now publishing thick books and people are doing workshops like this on the guide. Everybody needs a guide to the guide. Where does this thing end? I call this the syndrome syndrome. <laughs> but it doesn't stop with the number of issues we've got. And by the way, all of this exists in the world of business. Same, you can make up a similar list. Then there's the problem of which school do you belong to? Is it psychoanalysis? Is it family therapy? Is it behavioral therapy? Or the others? If it's psychoanalysis, is it Freudian, Jungian, Adlerian, Lay, Sylvanian, object relations, or self? Is it family therapy? Is it system, structural, strategic, transgenerational, constructionist, deconstructionist, gender-oriented? Is it behavioral therapy? Is it Skinnerian, Walking, Gestalt, Transactional, Rogerian, Group, Ericksonian, or Hypnotherapy? Plus, Art therapy, brief therapy, cognitive therapy, dance therapy, massage therapy, milieu therapy, play therapy, and so on. How do you deal with all this? Again, a similar list would show up from the world of business. And now we get to background. You should know all about the background of people. Appalachian, African, Chinese, Greek, Hispanic, Irish, Italian, Jewish, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Spanish, Vietnamese, lower class, middle class, upper class, baby boomers, child of the 60s, 70s, 80s, the X generation, and so on. I went to Bucknell University. I graduated in 1954. A couple of months ago, New York Times doing something on the generation that graduated only 25 years ago, in 1970, uh, whatever that would be, five. Um, they did a study of where all those people were today and what they were thinking before, and it put it all out as Generation X or Baby Boomers or whatever. None of those quotes were any different than what we said when I went to college. The same stuff. But supposedly, it's due to the generation rather than to the human phenomenon. What the social science construction of reality takes us away from is the human phenomenon. Now, this focus on diversity plays into the hands of the displacement and the irresponsibility. You'll rarely find a culture or a society in which all the families follow all the rules. I will present to you the hypothesis that whenever people say their family is a certain way or they're a certain way because of their culture, 
Not only is that not important information to jot down, that's denial of personal responsibility right then and there. That every time people focus on cultural diversity issues, it is a way of avoiding taking personal responsibility. Now, um, this came to me, and it's in one of the papers that is distributed in that collection of reprints, which was, I had done a lot of work with Jewish, non-Jewish couples. And in doing that, I began to hear all the non-Jewish people who attributed problems to their culture and all the Jewish people. I first got interested, I guess, in the Jewish people. And I'd hear comments from Jewish people like, voting is a Gentile sport, or Jews don't live near forests. They like contemporary homes. Jews don't let their kids sit in the living room. Jews think distance is fundamentally a non-Jewish concept. Or Jewish women don't tell our ages, wear knit suits, are dirty fighters, and can't keep secrets. Oh, and they're built small on top and big on the bottom. Now these are the kinds of things that I used to just hear. And I started jotting them down. Then I started jotting down the others. My husband has a typical Syrian temper. That's a typical Prussian way of distancing. German men are pushy. If you're Catholic, you carry a cross till you die. Pakistani women have no sense of romance. The Irish don't bring up divorce at a work, work wake. In southern families, women are treated, treated like slaves. It's my Anglo-Saxon background, peace at any price. It was a garden variety, close Huguenot family. In those days, Australian families didn't get divorced. That's his Swiss mentality. I came from a typical European family where mother was the boss. I came from a typical European family where father was the boss. <laughs> In small Pennsylvania towns, you never talk back to your parents. Once you're baptized, your parents have got you. And then my favorite, because it ran against the mythology of my neighborhood, we always try to date Jewish girls back home because everyone knows they're freer. <laughs> and I have a parenthesis, try telling that to their brothers. What I'm suggesting is, this is a natural tendency, because how mature can you expect anybody to be? But, in a society that is siding toward immaturity, in a society that is moving towards finding displacement factors, then what happens is, this is supported. My own personal view is that all this focus on diversity and ethnicity is a displacement. It's a way of avoiding personal responsibility. Because people always have choices. And you can find, even in the same family, people responding differently to the same cultural background. What is the effect of all this data deluge? I'll give you quickly a whole list of them. The data confusion. One, the sheer volume makes it difficult to keep up or to be discriminated. Two, the constant shifts in the foci of a chronically anxious society give a slippery quality to any information foundation. Three, the emphasis on being informed erodes confidence, judgment, and decisiveness. I think being informed is overrated. Four, the emission of emotional process and the individuation variables 
diverts the attention from those factors and it skews all data gathering. Five, the time and energy and constant engagement that is demanded by the data focus and society's anxiety preempts the time and energy necessary for imaginative thinking and the creative process. Well, I'm just going to stop with those five. Um, now, I want to go on and I'm going to read the next section to you directly. I clearly won't have time to go into the brain, the views of the brain. I'll do that after lunch. But just to show you the other side of it, the data junkie side. There is another side to the data deluge. For the greatest mental health problem in family America today may be the substance abuse of data. If the data deluge puts all leaders on an anxious treadmill of pursuing more information in order to stay on top of things, the pursuit of information offers family and institutional leaders and healers an easy escape from having to deal with society's chronic anxiety as well as with their own personal being. Leaders are both overwhelmed and seduced by the data. In a chronically anxious family, that would make people anxious. In chronically anxious America, the constant imbibing of data and technique offers a similar quick fix. Data thus becomes a substance that is at first eagerly sought and then ultimately abused. But recovery begins with admitting there's a problem. The worst part of the data junkie thing is that the vicious cycle that is always characteristic of addiction, namely, the fact that the reliance on the substance erodes the strengths that have to be mobilized in order to break free from the substance is remarkably descriptive of what has happened to America's leaders and healers with regard to data and technique. So that the more we rely on it, the less opportunity we have, the less willingness we are, the less ability we have to develop the factors of emotional process and self-differentiation in ourselves that would enable us to get free from the substance. And that's the vicious cycle. So it shows up in the etiology of the disease, the condition, and the recovery. As far as the etiology goes, there is What you can always say is true about chronically anxious families and what's also true about families with uh, addiction problems is a low threshold for pain combined with overwhelming feelings of helplessness, frustration, powerlessness, isolation, confusion, and emptiness. But these are precisely the attitudes expressed so often by today's parents and presidents. Second, no matter what the addiction, because it is an artificial way of dealing with life, the human organism, after developing a dependency on the substance, builds up a threshold for it, a tolerance for it. So that what happens is, whoever is addicted to a substance, using a substance, has to take more and more quantities. And that is exactly what happens in America today, as people addicted to data keep needing to go to conferences and read books and get more data. That's the etiology. The condition. Substance abusers 
families with substance abuse can often appear to be quite normal. There's a great debate. Is substance abuse a behavior problem, a vice, a disease, a genetic proclivity, or a personality disorder? What is less open to question is that those who become addicted tend to create relationships that are pseudo-mutual, tend to see the world in a distorted reality, often have trouble distinguishing what is normal, live a life that is organized around their symptom, tend to be mired in guilt, and are enabled to remain helpless by the helpfulness of codependent others. What I am suggesting is that much of the training program for leaders in society have become enabled and the publishers have become pushers. You might say, well, but there's a difference. We're not talking about chemical addictions. But anyone who thinks that chemical addictions, or that the chemical addiction is the key to addiction, and that the problems of detoxing are physical rather than emotional, has just never observed the problems of withdrawal involved in trying to separate a golfer, a stamp collector, a gambler, or a fisherman from his habit. And we are stuck in a habit. Finally, recovery. Kicking any habit is obviously difficult. But what do you do when you can't find a support group because everybody else is addicted? How do you kick a habit? How do you detox when everybody else is saying, I'll start tomorrow? Will the information superhighway become the next skid row? <laughs> there are universities now that have support programs for people who become addicted to their computers. What would data sobriety look like in a leader? What would be the profile of a data sober parent or a data recovered therapist or CEO? Obviously, the answer is not abstinence. The issue is not data's use. It is data's abuse. Well, the 12-step programs all recognize that there must be surrender to a higher power. But that's what I'm all about. The surrender to the higher power is the natural systems of life. Of recognizing that we as human beings are not that different from animal life. And I'll go into that more later. That what we're dealing with are emotional processes that transcend the social science construction of reality. Finally, a comment on the brain. It is known that addiction affects the brain. What are we producing in our society among our leaders? What will be the effect? Will there actually be a neuronal transformation of our brain if we ignore emotional process and stay focused on data? And the last point is, what about fetal alcohol syndrome? We know that mothers who drink can transmit a problem to their children. It is called FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. Is there an analogous phenomenon? What will be the effect on children we raise in an atmosphere in which their parents are focused on data rather than emotional process? This is the data addiction side of it. Now, I'm going to stop here. What I will show you after lunch is new views of the brain that show that, emotional that the way the brain functions always includes emotional process with the data. 
And I'll begin with that after lunch. So I'll see you at about 1.30.